I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I write for the New York Times and the New Yorker. I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of the Washington Post. And I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the 29th episode of Three on the Isle. Wow. Podcast 29. <laughs> How can this be? A podcast from New York about theater in America. We are hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. And this episode is brought to you by Charcoal Blue. So it's been said before, but it's still true. April is the cruelest month for New York theater critics. And okay, (laughs) we're not not working in the coal mines. I I will never complain about my job because it's great. And having to go to the theater a lot Don't you feel like a canary sometime in the coal mine, uh, Elizabeth? (laughs) Well, uh, some of the shows for sure. Um, (laughs) um, Yes, the reason April is crazy busy uh, here on the theater beat is because a lot of shows are rushing to make the deadline for the Tony nominations. And so it is, it's, it's very intense. It's good intense, but it's intense. Um, and the soul, I mean, there's so many, I mean, we're just trying to keep up with the press previews. Indeed. So we'll be talking about a lot of the April openings, uh, uh, on, on the next episode of three on the aisle. And probably the one after that, too. Uh, Today, though, uh, we're going to catch our collective breath in preparation for the big plunge uh, by looking at what I guess we would all agree was the week's uh, biggest and most important uh, opening. Controversial, too, I dare say. Uh And after that, we'll uh, we'll take a a dive into the old mailbag, which... uh, thankfully has some uh, uh, queries for us this week. Good ones. (laughs) And we will respond uh, on the air to some of those questions. But getting back to that controversy, in case you were in solitary confinement, (laughs) the big noise on Broadway last week was kicked up by the opening of Sam Gold's new staging of King Lear, in which the title role is being played by a woman, Glenda Jackson. These days, of course, that alone isn't so surprising, Gender-blind Shakespeare revivals are now commonplace, and Ms. Jackson had already played Lear at London's Old Vic. And what, what's actually uh, uh, weird, I mean, that was kind of news to me, actually, uh, is that anybody is, you know, let alone a woman, is playing Lear on Broadway, because this, the, King Lear has been done on Broadway only twice in the past 60 years, and both times uh, were at Lincoln Center. Uh, one with Lee, G- uh, Lee Jacob in 1968, and then there was Christopher Plummer in 2004. I didn't see any of those. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, well, but I've seen it like a lot of Broadway. It's done tons of yeah. Broadway. I would say like, yeah, it's. I've just, seen dozens of King Lear's. Yeah. Uh, I've actually I actually counted it up for this review. Uh, this is the 16th Lear I have reviewed in the mm. Wall Street Journal. Wow. That has to be. Is that not the most of any show you've reviewed, Terry? Probably. probably. Even more than Hamlet? I mean, it's done more than Hamlet, I think. I think now it is, yes. Maybe. Uh, yeah, and um, this one, uh, clearly, controversial is the word because it got, you know, it's 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 kind of kind to say, it's generous to say that it got mixed reviews. I think most of the reviews were harsh or uh, highly negative. Uh, although uh, Glenda Jackson generally got high marks for her mm-hmm. for her Lear, which she had previously done in London, which I had seen actually in a very different uh, interpretation of oh, yeah? her own. Yeah, it played very differently there. Uh, but I would say that most New York critics uh, came down on the negative side of the show, and that you know there is something sad about that because you know, Shakespeare just doesn't get it done on Broadway anymore. 
Right. Yeah. Well, all three of us, as I understand it, are quite firmly in the camp of the skeptics about what Sam Gold, the director of this production, has brought to the table. And I gather that you, Peter, are even a bit skeptical about King Lear itself. Do, <laughs> well, I, do I have that right, well, or was well, I dreaming? Let me let me qualify. First of all, is Lear not? Do we not all think that Lear is the bleakest play in the canon? It, if it's yes. not, it's it's right up there, uh, and probably the reason why for 150 years a version of Lear reigned in England in which uh, Cordelia lived and married Edgar at the end. That was sort of the, I think, the the only way that audiences could tolerate the, the darkness of the vision of the play. I would say I'm not a skeptic about the beauty of the language or the literary merit of King Lear. As a playing piece of theater, it's a massive, massive problem for directors. I have seen it... Dozens of times, and I've yet to see a thoroughly, maybe once or twice, thoroughly satisfying version. Because I think so many things have to be in balance in a in a production of Lear, and it's very hard. It's monumentally hard to get right. And this one, I really think, went off. The wheels went off the bus on this one. It goes in fourteen directions, not just two or three. Oh yeah, it's it's like there were so many actors who were doing their own thing. It's it's like there were like eight competing Lears on stage, each one in its own little universe. And some of them did work for me, and others not at all. Maybe we so, should set the scene, somebody. Right. Uh, Terry, do you want to describe this Lear a little bit? We can fill in, uh, but you want to start us off so people have a sense who are, haven't seen it. Sure. Well, it's done in two long acts. The first act is two hours, two and a half hours long. Two. I've, I've, two. I've, two, two hours Felt long. Like yeah, two, and a half. two hours. Extremely long for a Broadway show. Uh, it's being done at a traditional stage on a, behind a proscenium arch with a gold metal curtain. That is the drop curtain. Mm -hmm. And a very uh, the set itself also has, has gold, gold, gold leaf walls is what it looks like. Like a Trump bathroom. Right, it it looks like exactly. a reference. That's exactly it looks right. like a reference. Yeah, it looks like a reference to Trump, although no, the the text hasn't been altered or anything like right. that. Right, oh. it's cluttered. It's a modern dress production. There's a whole lot of stuff up on that stage, and um, the storm scene is played with the curtain down. That was completely. I just could not understand the reasoning behind that. Could but let's you? but let's also say that it oh, has yeah. a really good cast of actors. Oh, yes. It has Elizabeth Marvel as oh, Goneril, John Douglas Thompson as Kent, Ruth Wilson as oh. Cordelia and the Fool. I mean, these are wonderful, wonderful actors, all sort of, you know, tossed like a salad and J into J this. Jane Hootyshell as Jane Gloucester. Jane Hootyshell as, as Gloucester. So, so I, there was more than one gender I, reverse I think by now, so like the, 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 the listeners will figure out that this is uh, definitely not traditional in terms of the casting since we have several women playing men uh and then of course there's russell harvard who's a wonderful actor deaf actor deaf actor playing i mean uh um, playing cornwall yes but, but which, also which allows the most wonderful piece of irony when a deaf mute rips out gloucester's eyes mm. that is that oh, is a it. that's nice yeah that's I mean, a nifty a touch i think uh it's non-traditional casting but no particular emphasis is placed on that. Mm. Uh, the the people who are cast non traditionally are simply cast non traditionally. Mm -hmm. Right. And and Glenda Jackson's leer is not. It's not like there's a sign flashing on and off that says I am a woman playing leer. Uh, 
I think partly her, her appearance has something to do with this. She's dressed mm-hmm. in a suit. She looks natural in it. She's always worn her hair short. She looks rather androgynous. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has a, a, an even lower voice now mm-hmm. than she did 20 years ago. And um, at, at least I wasn't sitting there ticking off the non-traditional casting points. In oh, this. no, I, I, I no. did not mean yeah. that in a bad way. I just no, no, no. Uh, no, explaining. I, I took them for yeah. granted. And it's very much in this, what gold, Sam Gold, seems to be uh, uh, affecting as a style of Shakespeare. He did a, a Othello uh, off-Broadway and a uh, as well as a Hamlet at the mm-hmm. public that were also had this sort of improvisatory sort of feel taking references where they find them. You never quite know where things are going to happen. In this production, uh, Edgar suddenly breaks out in Spanish at one point. There are like moments that you feel that were in rehearsal sort of like dreamed up and he said, yes, keep that. Uh, you know, it doesn't feel sometimes as if there's a plan. And I don't think that necessarily you have to feel that at all times uh, with a production. But uh, it also feels, though, sometimes uh, you're not secure in the feeling that someone's uh, guiding this thing. Well, it's not a conceptual production. That really struck right. me. There is no overarching mm-hmm. con- concept, that's been an overlay that's been superimposed on the play. Uh, right. And, you know, it, it's an actor's leer. For me, that was the takeaway. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a stage full of really good people. Uh, they they often do seem, especially Don, John Douglas Thompson, they seem as though they have wandered in from a different production. <laughs> and in John's case, it may well be the leer that, where he played Kent at the public with Sam Waterston a few mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, which God, was, that, uh, that a, was a bad one. Oof. Yeah, it was t- it was a terrible one, but it was also one in which everybody there was no feeling of ensemble. Everybody mm-hmm. felt like they were all coming their own way. John was the most obviously classical of these actors. Um, he is, as we all know, a very great classical actor. And when he's on stage, you feel like you are hearing and seeing a, a, a more conventional leer on the very highest level of delivery. Um and I'll tell you, the other person who struck me that way, and she's not a classical actor at all, that's Jane Howdy Show. As far as I know, well, the very first thing she ever did in New York was a, she did a small role in a classical uh, Shakespeare in the Park production. I didn't even notice her in that because we didn't know who she was. Uh, she mostly plays these small, quirky roles. She's very striking in them. We all know that she's an extraordinary actor, but I've got to tell you, that was the best Gloucester I ever saw. Wow. And, I, and it was good because of her command I, of the text. I got I to gotta say, but both the people that you just singled out, John Douglas Thompson and Jane Hoodie Shell, for me were so bland and forgettable, I, I can't even remember they were on stage. Interesting. That, that scene where Gloucester gets his eyes out was probably the single most boring staging of that scene to the point to the point that a guy in front of me started texting while Jane Hudishan was screaming. I'm like, okay, so number one, if you can't, <laughs> if you, if that scene doesn't grab you and you've got to start texting during that scene, as I've tweeted, you know, theater is just not for you. Well, but number two, I was bored too. I was like, oh my God, like uh, this was, uh, they, I found them both so bland 
Yeah, Nothing I didn't was, care. Ugh. I didn't. The problem I had at the end it was there was a dry eye in the house. I mean, the, you know, there it, it yeah. was. It was a very unmoving production. You didn't really feel for anyone. You didn't care about Cordelia's okay. death. You didn't no. care. It, it just and and the. But, I just want to say that the what you're what you both are describing are these you know these supporting performances that normally you give a sentence to. And you should be talking only. About, I mean, Lear is about Lear, and in in London, okay. a, pro, a, a production that had a lot of flaws, directed by Deborah Warner, mm. uh, it was a little bit mannered at times. And Deborah Warner mannered, really? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but it was indisputably Lear center stage the entire time. You felt the power in that performance. And I, I felt somehow something was taken away from okay. Jackson. I, I am going to say there was one thing that really worked for me in that Lear. And um, there was one angle that really worked for me. I thought Glenda Jackson's Lear was the single most monstrous Lear I've ever seen. Mm. And I've seen a lot of them. And that th this Lear stays monstrous almost till the end. So what does that, what does that mean? Well, that, that Lear is a monster and there's no, see when men, Lear is like the golden, the plum role for actors of a certain age, mm -hmm. they get to a certain age or they lose their hair or they grow a beard and they're like, I want to do Lear, I'm ready. Right. And, but there's always, especially starting with the storm scene and after that, there's always creeping in, in those male portrayals, an element of, they, they need the Weakness. redemption. They need the redemption. They're, they kind of, whereas there's absolutely no redemption for this character, the way Glenn Jackson's only. And that's why. But it's not a why. tragedy if you don't feel Lear's sense of It is because it is creating, it is creating, and this is where the production is inconsistent. Because if you're going to have a Lear who's a monster from beginning to end, I'm buying that actually, but you have to have everybody around oop, act accordingly. And the only two did to me were Regan and Goneril because like remember at the beginning they're like crying he mm -hmm. drives them to tears he's a horror they have developed PTSD I'm like okay I'm, I'm totally buying this he's fucked them up he's fucked up his daughters these two and so then I understand why they're going completely like soap opera bonkers in the second half I'm like okay he's created two monsters the monster has created two monsters I totally bought this cycle of crazy abuse I totally bought that but the problem is that it only works in reference to these two characters and nobody else is on that plane but well in fact let's talk about Elizabeth Marble for a moment oh my god um, that <laughs> let's, is let's. I've you know as, as I said a little earlier I've seen a lot of Lears and uh, the the sisters they tend to be done one way a very straightforward monochromatic way and finally I was thinking to myself here's a, a Goneril who's interesting mm -hmm. because she's funny and she's sexy, really sexy. I mean, at one point, even shockingly sexy, there's a gesture that she does, uh, uh, <laughs> the one where she smells her fingers. And, right, yeah. You know, I mean, you just sit up, bolt upright in your chair at this. Elizabeth Marvel is a wonderful oh, actor. Oh, my God. She's... I, you know, she has a great history of it. But this, this was a highly creative performance. And um, obviously, we weren't in the rehearsal studio, so we don't know to what extent Gold contributed to it. But whoever is responsible for it. It was certainly the most interesting Goneril I've ever seen. And um, to me, we know, we know what Gold has contributed to this. And, and I would say that for me, the big problem with this Lear is that it's cluttered. Mm -hmm. Not just visually, but conceptually. It's a failure of set design. 
and one that is consistent with the way gold goes about things. And the giveaway is that he loves to run scenes all the way downstage. Um, uh, that first show of his that got our attention, uh, 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 you know, the the angry the angry young man play. I just went blank on the name of it. Um, look back in me. anger. Yeah, look back oh. in anger. You know, was pushed all the way downstage. It was freeze like. He really likes to do this. Mm. And for me, this this production really didn't catch fire at all until he dropped the curtain and played the storm scene in front of it. Can I, can, I, no, can, right. can, can I pull us back a little bit? Because there are going to be a lot of people who are not going to have seen this or have a mm-hmm. chance and they're hearing us talk very in depth about analyzing the performances. Here's my question, because I would say that about an hour in, I gave up. I just felt that this was, I, I was so uh, not intrigued by what was going on that I started to to, 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 to just sort of like walk away mentally from the production. Not that I went into dreamland, but I just sort of decided, you know, this is not going to be redeemed in the in, in unless the storm scene is, you know, so brilliant that I that it oh. washes away, so to speak, everything that came before. Mm-mm. I can't, it can't recover. And the question I have is, you know, how much do we have to think holistically about what we're doing here? And and when we react to something and we have that response, you know. Do we have a? Is it possible for a play to be good after the first hour? I mean, is and is it something you can really uh, persuade a theater goer to believe if they come in and have that same experience in the first hour? And it's like, I no, wait a so. minute, mm. in, in, the, wait for the third hour, folks. You know, the by the time is, you've you know gone to the bathroom twice, you will have a good time. I mean, you know, it's it just. I just wonder if you know we can almost become too. We parse it too uh, distinctly, and it's really the fact is that for the sake of entertainment or even in terms of of absorbing what the play's about, you have to grab people at some point in the first 65 minutes. But this is not unusual with Lear. I've seen a lot of Lears that didn't reach escape velocity until the storm scene. That first hour of the play is the hardest part to stage. Everybody usually manages to make things happen with the storm scene. And then the, the last act of the play is, is completely at altitude. I mean, maybe this is a built-in problem with Lear. It was certainly a problem with this production. My attention was wandering. But I, I think it was wandering because there was a lack of focus that arose partly from this problem of design. There's just too much stuff up there. The problem of ensemble, the performances are striking, but all over the place. And we haven't mentioned the fact that there is also an onstage string quartet. Clutter, playing, <laughs> clutter, yes. Right. Playing, playing the Philip music Glass. of Philip Glass, which is adds does nothing but add to the clutter. Right, good point. Oh it plays God. continuously all the way through the storm scene, uh, which is a real uh, action killer. Um, and once you have a score by Philip Glass, you've got to use the score by Philip Glass. It's not like right. you go, uh, let's cut the, the Oh, Philip my God. Score. That's exactly right. Right, but right. There and was it's just also too a, much junk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Junk. V- very bland score, too. Like, it completely banalized the, the storm scene because it was just this very pretty, uh, 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 you know, going at it, yeah. like, just forever. Um, yeah. I think... Uh, yeah, and I, I I will say though that I will dispute the idea that the first hour of Lear is 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 the most uh, difficult. I think the scenes in which Reagan and Goneril Regan and Goneril take away his men oh. uh, and humiliate Those him repeatedly and drive him to the point where he is 
going mad or you think that it's activated that aspect of him is one of the great dramatic pieces of the play yes. and when that doesn't work when that falls flat and I felt like nobody was was sort of playing that in any way that made sense where you were I didn't know what was going on most of the time and it felt even went to the point where you know they're they're duct taping John Douglas Thompson to I, a plastic chair uh, you know I mean there was just so much as you say a uh, distraction for no good reason just, that they really weren't playing the text I think it would have been a better yeah, show if they just done it on a bare stage with I, with books in hand I want to see I always want to see more Regan and Gunnerwell. I just love them I, I wish oh, someone yeah, would write a play roles. you know I wish someone would do like a Rosencrantz and Guilderstein about them exactly I want to see Gunnerwell yeah, yeah, right, and, right, right. and Regan that's I love great, them that's right that's a great idea wouldn't that be fun yeah okay well, this is a call I'm putting on a call out there for to a playwright there probably could is write me a play about just the, the two sisters and Cordelia is boring I don't want to hear about her there's probably a summer festival a where little... they're going to do the musical Ron, Reagan and Goneril or Goneril I can't wait. and Regan <laughs> yeah well Goneril with an exclamation point exactly. and cast <laughs> Elizabeth gone, gone, Marble Goneril. oh Elizabeth Marble in, in every going going Goneril <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh I'm my sorry. god, you're killing Gunner me. With the wind. Oh my god. <laughs> Gunner over the wind. All right, thank okay, you, I think I think this is the sign yeah. that we need to leave yes, Lear we're going behind. Mad. We're all going uh, but mad. before we move on to the mailbag, we wanted to put in a little word, a short word, uh, about another memorable performance that's just ended. Um, because a couple of days ago was the last performance for the Ben's visit. Mm. And of course, at the core of the band's visit, the wonderful David Yazbek and Itamar Moses musical, Tony-winning musical, uh, was the performance by Katrina Lenk as Dina, uh, yes. the proprietress of a uh, little restaurant cafe in a podunk Israeli town. And Katrina is the rare case, actually, nowadays. Of Bet HaTikva is the town. Yes. Of a, Not of Bet HaTikva. <laughs> Bet HaTikva. With a B. Uh, with with a B. A B. <laughs> um, of an actress who, or an actor who stayed with the role from beginning to end. She was, uh, did you know that the musical originally was going to be directed by Hal Prince? Right. And then, but that didn't last very long. And then uh, uh, David Cromer came in very early on and Katrina Lenk was cast and she was with the part from workshop to off-Broadway run at the Atlantic Theater to Broadway. And she's done, she did all the performances except when she was on vacation or then there was the understudy, but really that was just her. And to, for comparison, she had three leading men. It was just her. She started the show. She finished it. And God, what a what a glorious! I mean, that is the definition of star making. I mm. saw her three times. I saw mm -hmm. her off Broadway. I saw her in Broadway previews, and then six months in, the Wall Street Journal did a, a promo on stage interview, and I, in which I talked to her and Cromer, and 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 uh, I stayed. I went to that performance too, and. She kept it alive. It continued to grow. Um, we rarely, as critics, see people who are performing well into a long run of a show. And they all talk about how hard it is to keep it alive from night to night. And boy, she did it. I mean, she wasn't just a great star, but she was a great professional in that show. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I was thinking I'd love to, you know, I'd love to see if they actually revived it. I'd love to see Laura Benanti play that part. I think she'd be really you interesting. Think? Yeah, I really do. Oh yeah, um, well, but, yeah, um, that's a good idea. But I was going to say, you know, the inter here's the other interesting thing. It won the Tony last fall, last spring, mm -hmm. didn't it? Right. Yeah, yeah, last year. It didn't make it to the next Tony broadcast. Now it paid back its investment. 
It mm. paid back its investment, but it didn't. It's an interesting. It's interesting to note that it could not make a year after the Tonys, which made. I mean, it, everything doesn't have to run for five years. Let's be absolutely. Real. However, I think it always was a nervous hit. Uh, even mm-hmm. though they made mm-hmm. it work on their terms. Oh, that's a, and that's, that's a great phrase, yeah. Peter. A nervous hit. I yeah. like mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And I think that uh, it it ran a healthy run. It was not ever a blockbuster, which is really true to the piece itself. Right. It's not a, you know, blow your, you know, it's, it's not going to, you know, blow, blow you out of the theater. It's a very gentle, contemplative musical. So maybe that sort of always was going to be a hard sell on Broadway, even though, congrats to the production, they did um, pay back and um, and made it and won a slew of Tony Awards, mm-hmm. which is both great things. Oh, and it's yeah, going I, on tour. Yeah. I never thought it was a, a natural Broadway show. Right, and right. The, and the fact that it ran and, as long as it did, uh, maybe it's a, it was a, not a nervous hit, but a normal hit. Mm-hmm. Our ideas mm-hmm. about how long Broadway shows run have been badly distorted by the extreme long runs that have now become commonplace right. of, of typically very safe shows, excluding Chicago, was not, which is not a safe show at all. Which is another but, reason to praise Katrina Lank, who stayed with this show. As you said, Terry, you know, most people get tired. She stayed with the show for the length. She, you know, and I'm sure that that was a healthy part of why it remains so vibrant, mm-hmm. this production. Yeah. Well, another, now, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, go, go ahead, Terry. Cast. I mean, they, no, a lot go, of the cast yeah. stayed. Go on, yeah. um, I was going to say that one of the other things that it proved is that it proved that you can have a stunning Tony number without going big. Because I think the common wisdom is when you put on a musical mm-hmm. number for the Tonys, you've got to like Dan- just you've got to like yeah. have like twenty, you know, like fifty ensemble. I mean, it's just crazy. Right. They killed it. They killed with just two people sitting at a table, barely moving. One of whom didn't say anything. <laughs> I mean, that was right. amazing. Right. And I mean, everybody I've talked to has seen that, and you can easily see it on YouTube. I said, like, that's one of the most mesmerizing Tony performances. So it really defied, again, the common wisdom, the accepted wisdom that, you know, go big or go broke at the Tony broadcast. Not at all. They're just, but it's a gamble because you have to be able to pull it off. Right. Well, cheers to David Yazbek for having written the perfect song in a beautifully balanced score that was just as satisfying as it could be. And, you know, cheers to him and farewell to Katrina Lank and... Come you know, back and dazzle us again. But you know, the the, the the good news about this is now we're going to be able to see her in another role. It's really exciting. Right. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Totally right. She she has a very great career ahead of her. Absolutely. And we will be back in just a moment after a word from our sponsor. What makes the perfect performance venue? Comfortable seats, great views of the stage, a line for the toilet that doesn't take you out to the sidewalk? In truth, every venue is unique, from a college studio space to a Broadway house, from a presentation space to an arena. Undertaking their design or renovation can be a challenge, but at Charcoal Blue, that's all they do. Charcoal Blue are the leading theater, acoustic, and digital design consultancy that have designed, renovated, tweaked, and polished more than 200 performance and presentation spaces, both here and abroad over the past 15 years. From a six-person mobile podcasting studio to the new Performing Arts Center at the World Trade Center, their team of experienced musical and theater professionals innovate at any scale and any budget. With studios in New York, Chicago, the UK, and Australia, speak to them today about how they can help you realize your ambitions for your space. Visit them at charcoalblue.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at charcoalblue. 
Welcome back to Three on the Isle. Now we're going to dig into the Three on the Isle mailbag and answer some questions from our listeners with the help of Kirby Pate, our producer. We'll start with a letter from Gloria Birkenstadt-Freund, who writes, My husband Larry and I listened to your latest podcast called To Squabble Over a Mockingbird while traveling home to New York City on Amtrak from Washington after a weekend visit. In discussing the roundabout slash fiasco theater production of Merrily We Roll Along, which we've seen, you mentioned how rare it is to attend a Sondheim show with good singing. While in Washington, we attended a performance of Into the Woods at Ford's Theater. All the actors appeared to be from the D.C. area. The production was good and inventive, but best of all, this is a production in which every role was played by a cast member with a very good voice. It can be done. Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm going to say, uh, Gloria, I saw that I reviewed that production at Ford's Theater, uh, which I thought was terrific, directed by Peter Flynn. Uh, surprisingly and wonderfully, because I have seen a lot of Into the Woods that have left me cold. This one was very warm. And and, bu- and as you say, it was professionally sung. It was very melodic. But I have seen other performances, as I'm sure both uh, Elizabeth and Terry will tell you, uh, uh, that were also expertly sung. It's just that it, it required the demands are very, very high. I, it's very and and a group like Fiasco is almost uh, programmed not to bring in classically trained voices. They almost sound sort well, of college level. That's what y- they do with Fiasco, that's what they did with their Into the Woods. Right. It's just not what they they feature. Text is really where they they live. Right. Um, so that was what I think we were saying. But I but we appreciate your your point about uh, seeing really good Sondheim everywhere. Right. Remember what Laura Benanti told us on uh, our last podcast that Sondheim himself himself told her that he was more interested in the words than in the music, and that's obviously to be taken seriously since he said it. But it seems to me that there's a false dichotomy at work here. Um, you can have people who can sing and act. Uh, she's one of them. Melissa Rico is another example. Uh, people who whose Sondheim performances are all the more striking because they are sung with good voices and solid musical values, but they can act too. And that's that's really what I want to see when I see and hear Sondheim. I want to see and hear Sondheim. And when I don't, I'm going to be, to that extent, disappointed. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with both of you. So there's, yeah. <laughs> don't have that answers your question, that. Gloria. I know, I don't have much to add to that. Um, next, we hear from Chan Kendrick, who writes... Why are Edward Albee and Arthur Miller always listed first in their plays? For example, Edward Albee's Seascape instead of Seascape and then the author's name. The same with Arthur Miller and perhaps others. It's never just Sam Shepard's True West or August Wilson's Fences. Just curious. Hmm. Well, um, you mean in the she mean uh, he means in the playbills or on the marquees? Yeah, right, right. It's um, it's billing. It's uh, it's actually uh, it's spreading f- for sure. I mean, I would say now, for instance, it's always Rogers and Hammerstein's whatever Oklahoma, Oklahoma or yeah, that's pretty pretty. It's really it's become I think more it's and a, more common. I think it's branding. I think it's branding yeah. and the and the idea that p- more people will know Arthur Miller's name than All My Sons, for example. If you're not doing 
Death of a Salesman, which is his best-known work. It's uh, even, by the way, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is billed as Harper Lee's To Kill right. a Mockingbird on Broadway right which now. Which is anything yeah. but. But it, it's interesting, it's, right? It's to differentiate it from, you know, the other To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I think it's, you know, I don't, when I write the review, even though on the title page now it says that as if that's the official title, I don't use the Arthur Millers or I don't Edward think anybody Albies. does. Yeah, no. it's 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 purely from a branding point of view. Somebody will they're hoping will catch uh, interest in something that they ordinarily wouldn't, or they would see they will look twice at something they don't mm-hmm. look at once. And you know, and I think actually, it's nice to serve the playwright that way. Yeah, why not? You know, everything. It, 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 it's the only form. You never see a screenwriter's name over a movie, unless it's the writer director. They're never given quite the the primacy that a playwright has in the mm-hmm. theater, and I don't have a problem with using those titles as a way of marketing a show. And I, I, it doesn't change the show in any way. Terry, you look you look skeptical, it, Terry. It bugs me. There's to me there is something pretentious about Edward Albee's seascape. Uh, it's seascape by Edward Albee, mm. and if his if his name is in the same. Uh, size typeface on the marquee believe me they're going to notice that too uh i don't like the idea of a playwright becoming a brand well i actually saw a version of it said terry teachout's satchmo at the waldorf and i I don't believe i I don't believe we've ever done that (laughs) I I, i think it's warranted really only if there's like two like the Wild Party. Which, which one are we seeing? Oh, I see. But I don't mind. I, I don't mind it really. I don't mind it. It's fine. And also, the thing is, like, if you write a review or a feature or anything about the show, nobody uses that in right. in the article. I mean, so. Well, don't you but guys it is, think it though? Is, it's because they think it's going to help yes, sell a ticket. Absolutely. Oh, sure. But I mean, it's. I think it's also to please arrogant authors in certain cases. Albie in particular. Although he's no longer with us, so it's no longer an issue. Is it uh, is it done more with um with the estates maybe to please the estates? I think I think increasingly that is what is happening, especially with musicals. With Rodgers uh, and Hammerstein, too, the estate R N H is very 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 active, uh, and I think actually they've been kind of lately they've been using their powers for good, not evil, mostly because they've been very um, accepting of you know, sometimes radical takes on their properties uh, to wit the two very, very different Oklahomas that ran last year, the same-sex one in, in Oregon, uh, and then the uh, Daniel Fish one, which is now on Broadway. Uh, and I think if an, I think the um, uh, Rogers and Emerson estate is very uh, canny about that. They realize that you, you kind of have to be a little lenient uh, with your properties if you want them to survive. So uh, I wish more estates would be as progressive as these guys seem to be, seem to be. But the bottom line answer to your question, Chan, is that this is, billing is negotiated. And so that's the reason why this happens. It is because the author, the author's estate, or the author's representatives have requested and required this kind of building, billing. That's, that's what's going on. Yeah. Okay. And next, we have a choice question from Alan Baker. And this one, I can actually have a personal take on that one. So this is great. Uh, so Alan writes. I read a Jesse Green review in the New York Times of Hurricane Diane, a New York theater workshop production of a play by Madeline George. 
At one point he wrote, quote, reading the script later, I was surprised to discover I totally missed a major plot point near the end. My question is, how often do reviewing critics read the script of a play they've seen when preparing to write their review? Should they always or never read the script later? Okay, so I'm going to address this very specific example because, so I, I went to see that show, uh, uh, Hurricane Diane, which I very much liked. But I couldn't tell what the issue was. So I asked Jesse, I said, Jesse, what was the major plot point that you missed? So he told me, and I had also completely missed it. And then I looked in the script, and I was like, absolutely, there is a major plot point there that you cannot tell on stage. And then I asked a friend who had seen the play twice, and she had also missed it both times. In fact, she had no idea of, of what happened. Uh, I, I'm going to say what it is because at this point I think you know the play is closed. But anyway, uh, one of the lead characters, there's a, there's a huge uh, storm, kind of like a apocalyptic storm at the end of the play, and one of the major characters dies in that in that storm. And in the script, it says, I can't remember what her name is now, but anyway, so and so is annihilated in the storm. I had no idea that character had been killed in the storm, at all. And neither did Jesse, obviously, and neither did my friend. And how that is completely like a huge director problem. issue there. Right. It's a huge problem. Right. So it was good to read the, the script. script. Yes, but honestly, I would not because I did not notice that there was anything amiss. So I would not have. I actually because I, there was no red flag. If I had been reviewing that show, I probably would not have thought about looking at the script. I to the question that Alan asked, I. Um, I don't read plays after I see them, except if I'm looking to check on a quote of something yes. that I uh, am using in a in a mm -hmm. in a review. And sometimes I don't even do it then. Uh, I don't. I think my feeling has evolved over time, but I really feel that plays are meant to be experienced the way an audience experiences them, which is mm -hmm. to sit down one time and see it. Sometimes people ask if you see it two or three times. You don't. You see it once. Things pass your over your head. You do the, you you your mind wanders for a minute. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which oh my God, we yes. are just people watching plays. And the other problem is that the 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 um. The moment, the, 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 the amount of time I have between works to start reading plays and then writing about them, number one, distances me sometimes from the experience of having seen it. And secondly, I just don't have the time because mm -hmm. I'm off to two more plays this week, plus a feature, plus an interview, and I just don't have the time. I wish you all, you know, there are, there are critics who have longer lead times who write a weekly essay or maybe only write a couple of times a month for and a magazine and they have much more time for that. But a daily critic, I don't think it is essential to read the play uh, afterwards. Terry, what about you? Well, I fall somewhere in the middle. I never, as a matter of principle, look at the script before I see the show because I do want to experience it mm -hmm. as the audience does. Afterwards, there are circumstances when I'm maybe going to take a very close look at that script. I'll give you an example of that. It was David Mamet's China Doll, where it was quite clear. Uh, this was the one where where Al Pacino was in it. Oh and my God! Where he had he had <laughs> prompters. He had all over the all yeah. over oh the set. God. That was amazing. You read it. You're you're glutton for punishment. I stare the whole time off stage left and stage right. You know right. he was looking right at the screens. Yeah, but the point is that I suspected that the play he was giving us 
was at variance with the one on the page. Mm. And so I checked the script. That's, that's and a good sure point. enough, he was all over the place. <laughs> I, that's great. You know, I, yeah, that's I, great. When, I love when that. Something like, when something like that is happening, yes. you know, because my memory is usually pretty clear for what I heard, I want to know whether the script is being followed. Um, and then there are also plays, uh, like one we all reviewed recently, What the Constitution Means to Me, where there are improvisational elements. Mm -hmm. And I want to know what they are. Not before, but after. I want to well, know what's written out, what's not written out, what's the, being left to the imaginations the, of the actors. Yeah, I guess. I don't really, that doesn't seem as important to me. I do the, like to see sometimes, though, what the stage directions are. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, yes. what, what, what the, the casting instructions were. Yes. And whether they're at odds with what happens on the, with how they would, mm -hmm. you know, if there was a difference between director I, and, and playwright. I'll, I'll right. just that give kind a, of thing is interesting I'll and can inform how you perceive a play. I'll just give an anecdote and. Stop me. Have I, have I told on this podcast the story of watching Angela Lonsbury do Blight Spirit? So now um, we mostly get uh, the script as a, as a, they, we get a PDF, you know, by email. It's very convenient. But before, up until fairly recently, we would get a hard copy of the script. And about 10 years ago, Angela Lonsbury did Blight Spirit on Broadway. And we were given the hard copy of the script when we went in. So I had it on my, on my knees. And I could tell pretty early on in the show that Angela Lansbury was probably not following. So I kind of opened, I opened the script on, on, my, on my knee. And I started following along to see what she was saying. And she never, ever said what was written. It was always some kind of, I think I remember the time I said it was, it was like, it was, she was like riffing on a theme, like a jazz musician would be riffing on a theme. She never had it right, and yet she was very much in the spirit of the thing, and she always fell back. She always kind of like landed back on her feet, and, mm. and she was fine, but mm. it was never, she was not word for word at all, mm, never. Interesting. Uh, and know, it didn't spoil my enjoyment of the show at all. She was wonderful. Yeah. I'll tell you something where I, I always check is, is the description of the set because I sometimes and sometimes you go back to a play you think you know well like The Glass Menagerie and it is very interesting to be reminded of what the playwright has been telling you he has in mind uh, yeah I think that's true and of true. course I usually only write on Friday so I have the luxury to be able to take a little more time to do that uh, and it's something that I do like to do uh, we have one last letter in the bag this is from Victor Davis how did the three of you connect? The pleasant camaraderie and joyous banter among the three of you despite, and sometimes because of, strong differing opinions is part of what makes your podcast so fun to listen to. I get that you're paid to participate in the podcast. Please repeat that, Jeremy. Please yeah. repeat that. I get that you're paid to participate in the podcast, <laughs> but your triad comes across as kindred spirits hanging out at the Algonquin. Mm. I'd like to know more about how the three of you found each other and decided to do a podcast together. We're getting paid to do this? <laughs> Did Sorry. I not get the memo? Sorry, uh, <laughs> Sorry we've been, uh, yeah, no. Yeah, I have to confess to you, Victor, that Three on the Isle is, uh, is at least at present, uh, although we have a sponsor for this episode, A Labor of Love. But as to how we met, it's actually <laughs> quite a good story. Uh, back in the old days of Theater Talk, the, uh, the TV broadcast about the theater, uh, all three of us were on a panel at one of the broadcasts, and... Um, we noticed, at least this is how I remember it, both that we liked talking with each other 
and that we didn't get bent out of shape when we disagreed about things, which some critics do. I mean, they don't brook disagreement very well. And I, I don't know who it struck first. I think it kind of came to all of us first, that it might be fun for us to take advantage of to this. And s- start a thruple. <laughs> yeah. And somebody said podcast, and uh, we were off and running. That's really how it happened. Uh, and the impression is a correct one. We do enjoy talking to each other. We do enjoy disagreeing and, with each other. And there was a, a, f- a kind of very uh, early uh, organizational meeting, I would say, not at the Algonquin, but at a diner. <laughs> the so Algonquin like is think, not what it used like, to be. What is it called? The Silver Apple? The Golden, some Apple Diner? Some, the Apple, anyways, <laughs> it was, it was the Times Apple Diner Square Table. They'll put a plaque. They'll put a plaque up. Oh yeah. Well, it's also you know it's also true, Victor, that uh, we don't, as a rule, uh, critics get together and shoot the breeze. I mean, we do about mm. we bitch about some of the aspects of the job or how many we're, how many shows we're seeing or which publicist is 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 the most effective at the moment, perhaps at a certain <laughs> skill set. Uh, but uh, we don't really compare notes. We're so, you know, it is a competitive business having an opinion. And to some (laughs) degree, you don't want to necessarily trade all your trade secrets or or, uh, feel completely comfortable with that. It just so happened, as Terry and Elizabeth both indicated, that we felt a camaraderie and a and a love of the form that really sort of um, fit into each of our uh, personalities. It, it went hand in hand. Uh, we None of us really look upon this as a chore or even really just a job. And I think that that's part of the and, reason that and, there's any chemistry. And that's why we've been doing it for free <laughs> for yeah. Yeah. 29 yeah. episodes now. Yeah, yeah, for 29 <laughs> episodes. Uh, with no... With, no yelling, no no garrot, no uh, well, no uh, no no, no, no moments of like you know I'm not speaking to her or he's not speaking <laughs> to me uh, among any of us. Uh, we no. I think that's also because we all respect each other's opinions and because uh, these two people even when they're are, so often wrong as you guys are exactly <laughs> they're they're just both fun. They're people I would be friends with in another part yes. of my life. So that's yes, I, that's I, part I won't of it lie too. to you. There are people in our business that I would not want in this studio, and I won't say who they are. But the people <laughs> it's, who it's, are it's going to be like if you if you subscribe to our soon to launch Patreon campaign the super the highest Terry premium will confess all. is that will, Terry is going to tell you is going to whisper in your ear who are the people that he would not have a podcast <laughs> with but, but these are two people whom I really like as people as well as as critics and I think if this show works that's why it works well said all right our, so our thanks to all four of this week's correspondents and let me take this opportunity to remind you to write to us at three on the aisle at gmail.com. Spell it out, T-H-R-E-E on the aisle. We'd love to know what you think of the show, and we enjoy answering your letters on the air. We'd like to answer a few more of them right now, but the clock is running, and it is time to turn to our regular all-around-the-table discussion of some of the shows that have caught our attention in the past couple of weeks. Peter, why don't you start us out? Well, I'm going to start out with a show, a very uh, um, a small show in some ways. Uh, maybe not, I don't know how to describe it in terms of its ambitions. Maybe it'll be clearer as I just uh, elucidate a little bit. It's called Mrs. Murray's Menagerie. It's at Ars Nova, which is the uh, the wonderful little theater company that uh, birthed uh, both uh, 
Natasha Pierre and the Great War, Comet of 1812 and uh, Underground importantly, Rail- Underground Railroad Game. Which is coming back. Which is coming back. Uh, yes. Which is a marvelous, mm-hmm. in interesting May. piece. Yes, in May. Is that when it's coming? May, 18 I think performances, for, yeah, I believe. Very short run. Mrs. Murray's Menagerie is, uh, is group written by a group called The Mad Ones. And it's uh, it's as Annie Baker. It's more it out Annie Baker's Annie Baker. It's hyper realism of an almost borderline stultifying kind at at other times kind of interesting. I had a very mixed reaction to it because I kept waiting for the drama mm-hmm. to sort of activate. It, it what it is is it's a focus Which, group. Spoiler alert: it does not activate. <laughs> it's a like I, Elizabeth was there the same night I was there. It's a focus group. That's all it really is, and it's it's done as if it almost could be a verbatim script from a real focus group around the idea of a group of a disparate group of parents discussing a children's show called Mrs. Mur- Murray's Menagerie and their reactions to it. It's a show with little animal characters and there's a unctuous uh, leader who takes us through the focus group and they ask questions very, very, very uh, monotonously at some, mm-hmm. at some point where they list things on blackboards as people do their you know word associations with the show goes on for about an hour and a half it feels it, longer and and the and it's it has some very interesting moments of insight when they talk about some things like sort of the you know the the sort of subliminal racism that people aren't even aware of in their response to the black character of Mrs. Murray and some other things sort of emerge but never rise to the level of revelation. It's always in the way in which people really do get together and only have half-formed kind of uh, revelations with each other and then move on to other thoughts or, or are led away from them by a focus group reader who doesn't want there to be controversy in the room particularly. <clears throat> so it almost works against itself in some ways. I, I I was fascinated. I thought the acting was wonderful. The direction was mm-hmm. terrific. It was once again Ly- Lila Nugabauer, mm-hmm. our our yep. one time guest who directed Waverly Gallery so well on Broadway, and perhaps we'll get a Tony nomination as a result if people remember. Ly- it. Lila yeah. the big brain, Lila um, the amazing. But uh, I think it needs another go around. I do think I just think the expectation at some point that something is going to explain to us why. We sat for this mm-hmm. ninety minutes. What is the? What are they? It, maybe it was this group sort of organization of the piece that didn't allow any one voice to to rule. It's because it's a very word heavy piece. Um, I think maybe it just needs you know. What, it's an interesting idea that I feel like just needs a little more tweaking. Uh, I I completely agree with that. I was very disappointed, especially it's it's important to say that the show is set in 1979. Oh yes, of course. And the right, uh, the, right. the period recreation is fantastic. Um, in terms of like, I think the production values and the acting are so spot on, and it's very much. But you know, I love the Mad One's previous show, Miles for Mary, which took place in the 80s, mid 80s, I think. Uh, it is also a very similar uh, setup in that it's a group of teachers who are preparing a, uh, it's like a, some fundraising thing. But there were conflicts and discussions and arguments coming up. Whereas here, as you said, it just never, sometimes it, it's it kind so of submerged. like, it's, you have to read so much into yeah, it. It's so submerged. So much into it. And it's, after a while, it's, it, yeah, it was stultifying. Yeah. I was, I, I thought it was completely meandering yeah, and pointless. I, I went away and then with, I came back. Just frustrating because the production values are so good. The acting is so great. 
I yeah, it's just not working. Yeah. Yeah, I confess you. Yeah, you haven't made me want to go running to the theater for this one. Yeah, no, it's uh, and it's at the Greenwich House Theater, by the way, which used to be the Barrow Street. I mean, where the Barrow Group was. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so Elizabeth, what's your uh, what's what did you choose? I loved a show called Life Sucks, which is by (laughs) um, by Aaron Posner, and that's the third in his kind of Chekhov adaptation trilogy. He's done No Sisters, which was of course three. I saw it. Three sisters. Uh, and then he did Stupid Fucking Bird, which was the seagull. seagull. And now Life Sucks, which is Uncle Vanya. And I think uh, listeners in the D.C. area probably would have an opportunity to see his stuff because he's done in that area. He has relationship with uh, with Woolly Mammoth and Theater J and Arena. I mean, he's, all his stuff is done there. Uh, we had only gotten, I think we had only gotten Stupid Fucking Bird here in New York. Um, and this one is wonderful because it's a, it's a very loose adaptation of Uncle Vanya. That actually nails all the internal dynamics of the play. Um, it's set now, and it's completely uh, changed. There's a, now a character named Pickles, who's probably a f- woman now, but you know probably the equivalent of Waffles from the play. Uh, but everybody else, you know, um, has pretty much the same names, uh, and it's it's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, Austin Pendleton, who's I would say at this point, a national stage treasure uh, yes. plays the, the yes. older professor. Uh, and he's incredibly funny uh, and poignant as usual. And what's great about the cast, and as our colleague and uh, once guest uh, Helen Shaw pointed out, the cast is so good. They're very good in this kind of contemporary mock Chekhov, but they're so good they could be a great real Uncle Vanya cast. Mm. That's how good they are. I would highly recommend, uh, and I th- you know, it's a small show, it's like, six or seven cast members. It could be done all over the country. Mm. It is very, very funny. Um, and the ending is just, it's also a rare show that done? gets better. It's, oh, I'm sorry, yes, it's at the Wild Project on East 3rd Street. Tiny little theater mm. uh, that tends to have very good programming. I was very impressed. And you know what was amazing is, except for Austin Pendleton and um, actually uh, Jeff Beal, whom I had seen in Catch As Catch Can, is a very good actor. I didn't really know the other actors. And I was just like, where have you guys been? That's really fun. Uh, it was great. Um, just great, great, great show. Aaron will be thrilled. I had seen him do his JQA at Arena Stage a couple of weeks ago and really liked it. So, yeah, he's, yeah. Uh, wow, I was impressed. Yeah, smart guy. Uh, anyway, so, uh, Terry, who's, uh, or what's your pick? Well, I will also send you a part of the way downtown um, to... Um, the Irish Repertory Theater, which is my favorite off-Broadway house. They are doing a full season of the plays of Sean O'Casey. Um, they're doing stage productions in rotating repertory of O'Casey's Dublin trilogy, and they're also doing concert-style readings of 17 of his other plays. Uh, they've just gotten up what I guess is, is O'Casey's best-known play, Juno and the Peacock, which they the Irish Rep actually did it six years ago in a marvelous revival uh, starring J. Smith Cameron, but this one is at least as good, uh, and it's it's remarkable. I mean, uh, O'Casey is not known in the way that he should be in this country. Uh, he's the most characteristically Irish of playwrights, a specialist in tragic comedy of the most extreme kind. Uh, and this is one of those plays in which terrible things happen to people, some of about some of whom you have very sharply mixed feelings. Uh, including a, a long-suffering wife, uh, the title character, Juno, who is played perfectly, perfectly by Marianne Plunkett, 
Mm. Well, Marion mm. Plunkett. Mm. Marion Plunkett. I mean, she's, <laughs> she can't do no wrong. Yeah, yeah no, she's she great. She is absolutely uh, to die for. But the whole production, I think, is letter perfect. And if, as is not unlikely, you've never seen any of O'Casey's plays, this would be a wonderful way to get to know why he is an important playwright, why his his work is still very much alive, and above all, why the Irish Repertory Theatre is such a good company. So I, I, I wholeheartedly uh, commend it to the attention of everybody listening. Which brings episode 29 of Three on the Isles to a close. We all have plenty of shows to see in the next three weeks. And in our next episode, we will tell you about some of what we saw. But until then, I'm Terry T. Chad. I'm Peter Marks. And I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. You've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. Our producer is the ever-improbable Kirby Pate. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at Three on the Isle. Write to us at Three on the Isle at gmail.com. Spell it out, T-H-R-E-E, and please... Check in with questions and comments. We love to answer your letters. And we're not kidding. We want you to leave a positive rating and a review <laughs> on iTunes or Google Play. Please! And rave if you can. <laughs> Otherwise, abstain. <laughs> right. And we'll send you the script afterwards to review. That's right. Because <laughs> there were tragic mistakes. Bad, bad staging. Right. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the aisle. Mm-hmm.